to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you As Christians, we are greatly loved, but we are also greatly opposed. Anyone who is being used by God will suffer opposition. The question remains, why opposition? Join us now as we begin our study in Acts 11 and 12 with Cheryl Broderson. We will come before you, Lord, in wonder, wonder. We will fall on our knees and surrender, we surrender to you. And now, here is part one of Cheryl's message, The Way to Handle Opposition. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, the truth that is in your word, Lord. The expectation that is in your word. Lord, the realization, the revelation, Lord. Lord, these are people that are just like us. They have our same fears, our same weaknesses, And Lord, you are so, so great. You are so good. Lord, you are constantly condescending to us. You are constantly listening to us. You are constantly delivering us and rescuing us, even from ourselves. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would impress and press on every woman's heart today how much you love her, and that you are a God who is with her and is for her and will rescue her out of every single situation because you are the God who is the deliverer. You are the God whose very name says, I am salvation. So Lord, may we take your banner um, um, upon ourselves, Lord Jesus, and Lord, in your love, may we be delivered from fear in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I just feel like I have, I don't know if it's divine Alzheimer's. I don't know. (laughs) I think that, you know, sometimes God wants to prove himself to us in unexpected ways. Don't you think so? Like, this is not the way that I would show Cheryl Broderson that I am really in charge of everything and she has no power. But the Christmas Eve, I had all these responsibilities. I had him invited all these people over because my first Christmas with my dad, I didn't want it to look like anything was missing. So I was trying to fill everything. And my, my two daughters said, you know what? We don't even want to be in California. It, it hurts too much. So they were in New York. So now I, I've got the deficit of, you know, I'm not going to have my dad this Christmas and I'm not going to have my daughters with me. So I'm just going to I'm just going to ask anybody who doesn't have any place to go to come over to my house, and I'm just going to make a lot of food and keep myself distracted. And so um, I volunteered to also make the food for you know my, my mom's house. Yeah, I'll make all the food. Just please, just keep me busy. And so on Christmas Eve um, day, I was making the food, making my grandma's famous cinnamon rolls, and I had the mixer going, and I bought myself for Christmas on eBay. I bid and I won um, one of those vacuums that just vacuums by itself. 
uh, so I had turned on the vacuum that I'm one of those people that actually likes vacuums uh, for presents because Brian doesn't think that way. And so we buy ourselves our own Christmas presents and then just say, don't you just love what you got, you know? <laughs> so I have my vacuum. It was an early Christmas present to myself from Brian, from me. And so I have it going and I have the mixer going and I thought, oh my goodness, okay, I've got 15 minutes to blow dry my hair. So I run upstairs and I blow my hair dry with my styling brush. And I, and you know, that, that two handle, that's hard for me. Okay, that's an art form that I still haven't captured. But anyway, I come downstairs and my vacuum's like throwing these bubbles around my kitchen. And I realize I flooded my kitchen. I absolutely flooded my kitchen. It's like two inches deep in water. And I realized that I have left the sink running. Yeah, yeah. The sink running the entire with hot water. And there's bubbles everywhere. So I get every beach towel that I own out of the kitchen, um, out of the laundry room. I get every beach towel. Then I have to get every bath towel that I own. So you know what that means, laundry. And I'm trying to clean this up. And I've already bugged Brian so much that day. He's like, Cheryl, you've got to give me a break. I need to work. Do not call me. But I had to call him, even though it was, I don't know, the fifth time. I call him up and I said, Brian, I know you told me to quit calling you, but I flooded the kitchen and I cannot move the refrigerator. And he said, I'll be right home. So he comes home and he's moving the refrigerator. <laughs> he's so much like my dad. Oh my, oh my, oh my. And I'm not in trouble. He's not saying, who could you do this? It's just like, oh my, we've got a problem. I love that one flesh thing. You know, I'm not his problem. We are a problem together. So he calls some guys in the church. These men are so precious. I call them my Christmas angels. They come over and they've got the shot vax because when you were stepping on the boards in my kitchen, the suds were coming up still, like even after I dried everything off. Uh, and so they're like, Cheryl, we have to put blowers in your kitchen and you cannot be in this kitchen for the next 24 hours. And I'm just going, okay, I'm glad I got the dough done for this, you know, the roles, that's it. And so it was like, God was saying like, you're fired. You're, you're dismissed. I'm going to do this, not you. And it was totally not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the next day, all the food got done. I don't know how God does it, but he did it. And there was enough food. So, okay, that's absent-minded. Monday, there's the missions conference. Brian had put me down for three speaking engagements. I'm so gutted. I'm so empty. I am so like not here, right? I know I'm brain dead. But Brian doesn't realize that yet. I, I thought I'd give him enough proof with the flooding, but I didn't. So I have to give him more proof. So I said to Brian, look, please. Um, I, I gave my main session to Jasmine, who, who rocked it. Um, I gave my workshop to Joni, who rocked it. And the question and answer was with missionaries who should have been doing it in the first place. So it was like amazing. So I totally ditched the first day of the missions conference. And because I needed to study and I was at home. So I just said, Brian, all I want to do is be alone with Jesus all day. I just need my wonderful counselor. I just need to be alone. So I'm alone with Jesus all day Monday, you know, and I, I go to bed Monday night. I'm alone in my house. So this is, this is what I do. I have an ironing board on the back of the door and, you know, I put it down so that all I want is that the burglar has to make a lot of noise coming in my room. So I put my trash can in front of it. I put a suitcase in front of it. I put just a whole bunch of stuff that would rattle and make a lot of noise in front of my door to my bedroom. And I, of course, I locked the door, but, you know. And then I have this little thing that I can trigger. It looks like a 
key ring, key alarm for a car, but it's not. It's the alarm for the house, and so I can hit that panic button. You know, let him just rattle, let him rattle my ironing board, and I know when the panic thing is going on. Plus, I have my cell phone. It's already 911, just all I have to do is, yeah. And so, there I am. I go to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to being alone at night, I'm more afraid of being afraid than I am of a burglar, really. Because I just don't want my adrenaline going and to stay up all night. All I want to do is be able to be at peace and go to sleep all night, which I did. I went, slept all night. It was great. So the next day, I get up. I have my morning alone with Jesus. We study. You know, I, I do the Bible study. I, I take a shower. I, I blew my hair dry, but that time it was safe. I, it was just great. So about 12.30, I think, I'm going to go get the mail. I go to get the mail, and I turn around. I've left the garage door open all night long. Just totally up. Like, burglars are welcome here. Come take anything you want. It's worse. My car was in the garage with the doors unlocked with my purse sitting on the front seat. By the way, help yourself, you know? And, you know, I just, I felt the Spirit of the Lord say, Cheryl, who is protecting you? Obviously, you can't protect yourself. Who's rescuing you? You Who's got your back, Cheryl? Who? You know, you're the woman who leaves the water running and breaks her Christmas present. It it won't work anymore, that vacuum. It did say, do not get this wet. But the... The thing is, is like, the, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Our Lord loves us so much. I was reading in Zechariah chapter 7 the other day. And God was talking about how zealous his love is for us. And I know we talk about the greatness. You know, love, your love is greater um, than the oceans, greater. And yes, we know it's all around us. and We know it's great. But you know what we lose sight of? The intensity. The intensity of his love. This morning I was reading John chapter 21 and John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I thought, John, I'm so proud of that confidence that you have. But the Lord began to speak to me that John was one of 12. And he didn't say one of the 12 that Jesus loves. One of the 11 good ones that Jesus loves. You know, not Judas. He, he just takes this to himself. And yet I know that John was aware that Jesus loved Peter and Jesus loved James, but he knew the love and the intensity of Jesus for himself. And this is why, because Jesus' love is so personable, so intimate, so rich that we are to feel at times as if we were only children because of the greatness of his love. So, in that vein, though we are greatly loved, we are greatly opposed, aren't we? We do have opposition, and it's a part of the Christian life. I know in your homework this week, there was the question, why opposition? We we should have had the question, like, why is opposition good for you? Because we don't think it's good for us. But there, it's, so, it's so good for us because we tend to get so independent, don't we? We tend to just, it's all right, Lord. I'll take the next mile and you can have the one after that. And then what does the Lord do? He leaves you to yourself and you flood your kitchen and leave your purse on the front seat of an unlocked car with the garage wide open to show us 
that we need him so desperately. Opposition also, it, it, it allows us to see the hand of God in our lives and being for us. Have you experienced opposition? The answer, of course, is yes. We've all experienced opposition. How do you handle it? Do you take it personally? I think we all do, don't we? We're just like, I think that the president doesn't like me. You know, there's this new kind of health care, and it's just not working out for me. It raised my premiums. You know, we take everything so personally. As a personal affront, we see opposition as, Lord, what did I do wrong? Or sometimes we draw back from whatever we're doing because we're just like, you know, there's opposition. Okay, I'm going to stop because there's opposition. How many people give up the minute there's opposition? I think about in Haggai, we read about how the people had stopped building the temple. Why? Because all of a sudden there's opposition. And for 16 years, they stopped building the temple of God just because of opposition. Until Haggai and Zechariah rose up and said, you're to continue to build the temple. God is with you. His presence is with you. He's going to build this temple. He's going to do it himself if you'll just put your hand to the trowel. Sometimes we, we, we just... We resign, we give in to the opposition. We're just like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the other side. We find that in the book of Samuel. We find that these Israelites, because the Philistines were so strong and constantly in opposition, we're told that many of the Israelites begin to fight on the side of the Philistines instead of fighting for Israel. We're told in those days that the people of Israel didn't have weapons and the Philistines did. And so they're like, hey, you join the army, you get a weapon, and all you have to do is kill Israelites. And so they join the opposition. And sometimes that happens. But that's not the right reaction to opposition. Opposition happens when God is dynamically working. That's when you're going to know you're in the right place doing the right thing, when there is opposition. Satan means it for evil to discourage, to sabotage, and to even stop God's work. But God in his infinite wisdom actually uses opposition to accomplish his greater purposes. Again, we begin to rely on God and him alone. It showcases God's power because we can't do anything. There's opposition, but God can still work. As Paul said in Timothy, I might be chained, but the word of God is not chained. It exposes the enemy. Opposition shows you who the enemy is, who it is, who is truly in opposition to God and his work. And not only that, God uses that opposition to defeat the enemy. Anyone who is being used by God will face opposition. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a word of promise that I like. But it's a word of promise that is true. I think one of the issues with opposition that makes it so difficult besides its own essence and personality, the fact that opposition is opposition, means it's opposed, it's against you. 
But one of the other difficulties is that it arises from unexpected places. Many times it's from other believers. It's the church itself. Somebody once called (laughs) well-intended dragons. You know, and I think that's only because they're fire-breathing. But there are those times where you would think, this person is going to be for me. The, the church, it should first see the work of God and embrace it. Be so excited that people are being saved. And then it comes sometimes from political powers. From the very place that you live. The place that you thought you were flying under the radar. And suddenly you're noticed and you're being scrutinized. But what is the best way to react to opposition? Again, it's not to hide from it. It's not to stop or resign to it. But instead, we can learn from Peter in these chapters, Acts 11 and 12, four things to do when we face opposition. First, give God the glory. Secondly, rest in God. Three, Continue to follow God's leading. And four, leave everything with God. As we go through, I'm going to explain a little bit more what I mean. But Peter faced opposition. And there were two sources of opposition, as we see in chapter 11. You've got the opposition of the brethren in Jerusalem. Talk about unexpected opposition. In chapter 12, you've got the official or the government opposition to the work that God was doing in Peter's life. Now, opposition should not, in a perfect world, ever come from Christians. But it does. It just does. It's a fact of life. I've I've had young girls, you know, join the ministry and had like a honeymoon period and then all of a sudden go, there's opposition. Yes, there's opposition, but it's from Christians. They should not act like that. Yes, they, they do though, because they're humans. You know, I know I've been in opposition. I've been on the wrong side before. I, I, you know, maybe because the person singing was so cute. You know, I've been like, well, her voice isn't that good. Okay, so it's fantastic. Okay, but maybe, maybe, you know, she has ugly toenails. I don't know. You know, there are times that you're just like, no, I don't want this person to be perfect. Because maybe my place will be taken away. We all do that. We're women. We're faulted. We're human. And sometimes our greatest opposition is from the church itself or from our friends or the the people that we know. You know, when you talk, everyone doesn't go, oh, wait, stop. It's a word from the Lord. Let her speak. Yeah, most of the time they're like, you know, you see it in their face like, no, really, really, this is the Lord. No, no, I'm telling you. We sometimes can be slow. Our our, our friends can be slow to get it. And those people that you would expect to be the most supportive aren't always the most supportive. Now, it should have been the brethren in Jerusalem that were the most supportive of what was going on in Peter's life and how God was using Peter. They should have been the first to embrace and and rejoice over what God was doing through Peter. Why? Because they knew Peter. They knew him personally. They knew him as one of the heads of the church. They knew him as the disciple who had spent three years with Jesus. Peter intimately knew Jesus, and they knew Peter intimately knew Jesus. It was Peter that Jesus sought out. 
that he said to the women, tell Peter I'm risen from the dead. It was Peter that Jesus reinstated on the banks of the Galilee. Peter, do you love me? It was Peter that saw the Lord transfigured. It was Peter that was one of the first at the empty tomb. It was Peter that stood up on the day of Pentecost and boldly preached the gospel and 3,000 were saved. It was Peter who had been arrested and said, it is better to obey God than men. It was Peter who looked at the lame man at the gate beautiful and perceived that he had the faith to be healed and said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. He was the first disciple after the resurrection to perform a miracle in Jesus' name. They should have believed in Peter because they knew him. He was their friend. He was one of them. We know with Peter, he was also not afraid to rebuke someone who was out of line because he rebuked Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. Why everybody else is just so proud that a sorcerer got saved. Peter's like, hey, I perceive in you the gall of bitterness. I'm not going for this. You better repent. He called him out. This was Peter. And these men should have trusted Peter as a disciple of Jesus. But we're told that when the leadership in Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, instead of being excited, they were angry, they were contentious, and they were ready to go to war over this. A misunderstanding of the scripture and prejudice in those in Jerusalem kept them from rejoicing. Shouldn't it have been these disciples that rejoiced the first why? Because the gospel was preached and people's lives were changed? Shouldn't it have been these people who had the greatest understanding of the scripture and seen that the whole Old Testament is riddled with promises about the Gentiles being saved and coming to salvation, especially under the new covenant that God would raise up? These men should have been the first to embrace because one, they knew Peter. Two, because they were studying the scriptures. Three, because they claimed to know God and they had walked with Jesus. They should have known. But instead, these men are poised with a, for a fight. They are angry. They're accusatory. And they have made their supposition upon rumors. I want to just go on record as saying assumption and presumption are the evil twins of the church. Most of my fights with Brian are because one or the other of us have assumed or presumed. We've assumed that we know what the other one is thinking and we've presumed that their intentions are something other than they are. I know Brian would go surfing sometimes and he would be gone an extra hour and he'd come back and he'd be like, and I'd be like, what is your problem? Well, I just know that you're going to be mad at me because I went surfing for the extra hour. And I'm like, I am not mad. I actually needed that extra hour. So you can just drop the attitude. Really? You're okay? Yeah. But you know, and I do the same thing. Well, I knew that you were staying in this lane as far from the place you're supposed to turn right just to drive me crazy. And he says, you think I make it a habit to try to drive you crazy? I'm not. Those were your brothers. I'm here to, to preserve your sanity. Really? But you know, sometimes we just assume that they're doing what they're doing. You know, like, 
You want me to go crazy? It's okay. I can do that all by myself. But assumption and presumption are very dangerous because assumption says, I know your motives. Presumption says, I know, I know what you're going to do. We cannot assume or presume very dangerous things to do. They met with Peter and we're told that those of the circumcision, those who are keeping the law, but were believers in Jesus contended with him. This word contended is diacrinal. And it means to have a hostile dispute. This is not a nice little meeting like, let's just talk it out. What was going on? No, this is like, what in the world do you think you're doing? Opposition happens when God is dynamically working. That's how you know when you're in the right place doing the right thing. Satan means it for evil, but God in his infinite wisdom uses opposition to accomplish his greater purposes. If you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply visit our website at graciouswords.com or call 1-800-733-6443 and refer to it by name, which is The Way to Handle Opposition. Once again, our website is graciouswords.com and our toll-free number is 1-800-733-6443. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, Cheryl will continue her teaching in Acts chapters 11 and 12 with her message, The Way to Handle Opposition. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.